Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Welcome to this episode of Moving the Needle. Written assignments can give educators a powerful look into the learning process. Through writing, we can see how students absorb ideas, wrestle with them, and share that new understanding with others. But assessing that writing? Oh man, that is such an awesome responsibility, layered in complexity. I'm excited to dig deep into this topic today with our guests, Dr. Isabel May and James Wright. Dr. May is an associate professor in the graduate school at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, where she's also the program director for the Science Communication Program. Professor May is also the director of the Writing Center. She recently co-authored a chapter for a collection of essays titled Teaching Writing in the Health Professions that will come out in 2022. A native of Germany, Dr. May identifies herself as a multilingual writer and uses that experience to inform her approach to teaching writing and evaluating student work. James Wright is the assistant director and multilingual writing specialist at the University of Maryland Baltimore's Writing Center where he collaborates with peer consultants, faculty, staff, and students on writing pedagogy, curriculum development, faculty development, and writing center practices. His doctoral research draws on identity, critical race theory, critical whiteness studies, sociolinguistics, and labor theories of language to engage translinguality, anti-racism, and anti-oppression in the teaching and learning of writing. During our conversation, we'll explore the current scholarship in writing studies that addresses linguistic diversity and standards of English, as well as some concrete assessment strategies faculty might consider in their courses. We're excited for this conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Let's dive in. Isabel and James, welcome to Moving the Needle. Our pleasure, Erin. Thanks for asking us here. Thanks for having us. Well, we're so excited. This is uh, such an important topic. I can't wait to explore it with the two of you. Isabel, let's start with you. Could you just tell us briefly how you came to your current role as director of the Writing Center at University of Maryland, Baltimore? So I started at the University of Maryland, Baltimore in February of 2017, which seems a long time ago. And um, I came from some other another institution in our system. And um, my position was created and the official title at the time was faculty director of the Writing Center. And so a large responsibility of that position was overseeing, directing the writing center. But there was another piece there where I was hired as a, at the time, lecturer in the graduate school for the science communication program. Since then, the graduate school has adopted official or traditional faculty roles. So I have since been promoted to associate professor in the graduate school. And I also started directing the science communication program and also directing the writing center. So I wear a few different hats on this campus, which is really exciting. Well, one of one of your uh, first colleagues to join you uh, at the Writing Center was uh, a position titled Multilingual Writing Specialist. Can you tell us a little bit about how that position came to be, how it was envisioned, um, and the rationale behind it? You know, that's a great question, Erin, and I love talking about this. And I do need to give credit where credit is due. And when I started in, the fe- in February of 2017, that position was already in the work. So my predecessors... And the deans and the provost, folks in the provost office had already thought this through. So I inherited, you know, a great, uh, a great start. And so there's two major reasons why this position was created 
Um, number one is that in the writing center, we have seen a lot of our clients. And I say clients because we serve not just students. We also serve postdocs, faculty, staff, community members. You know, everybody's affiliated with University of Maryland, Baltimore, with UMB. So we serve a, a broad variety of, uh, of clients. And we've seen a lot of clients come. And I want to say about close to 50, if not a little bit more than 50% of our clients tend to be writers with multilingual backgrounds. And just about the term multilingual that many of some of our listeners might not be as familiar with. We now use the, the term multilingual instead of second language learner or English as a second language. The acronym for that is ESL because multilingual is a more inclusive term than second language learner. It really... And it's more of a term on a spectrum. So we understand language learning now as a spectrum. It's not like native language versus non-native language, but we're all, I think, in a way, language learners. And we certainly all are language learners of academic English, because I don't think anybody is born knowing how to read, speak, and write academic English. So the move towards multilingual um, instead of second language learner is a really important one. Um, so we've seen a lot of multilingual learners come to our center, um, either self-referred or referred by faculty, friends, staff, whomever. And so we wanted to honor that and really hire um, and develop a position and hire somebody who can focus on developing programs and policies for this populations and train our consultants with the, you know, develop certain sensitivities around working with such a diverse population. So that's one reason why we created this position. The second one is that um, a lot of my faculty colleagues, um, and this happened to my predecessor as well as to myself, would often approach us in the writing center and ask for support to help students who can't write English very well, or their grammar isn't good enough, or can you help us fix their English? And I'm not disparaging these comments. I, I appreciate when faculty come to us and express themselves in the language they have available, but we have a lot of research available to us now that we know that fixing somebody's English isn't the solution. And I know James is going to talk more about this because he's really the expert in this. But we realized that we also needed to do some education, not just for, uh, or not, so, well, we need to do some work, not just for our student, for our clients, but also for our faculty to work with particularly the students of multilingual backgrounds and to really have somebody on campus who can advocate for us multilingual learners. And I identify as a multilingual learner myself of English. Of English, My first languages are German and Slovak. I was born and raised in Germany. So English is not even my second language. So ESL would never apply to me in the first place. So, and, and again, those two reasons, um, developing programs and policies to work with multilingual writers, as well as having somebody on campus who can help us advocate on behalf of us multilingual folks, both with, uh, with faculty and administration. Those were the key rationales for this position. Yeah, that's great. That's so, um, so helpful by way of context. And so, James, you, you saw this position uh, posted. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what drew you to, uh, to apply and join us here at UMB. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that, that uh, has always um, fascinated me has been um, working in collaboration with folks uh, who are concerned about uh, the, the ways in which language gets taken up and used, perceived in the academy and, and beyond the academy. Uh, so when I saw the post and, and, and I had the interview, I knew immediately that this was going to be a position that was going to be wide open for bringing to uh, the graduate level, especially health and human services and sciences here at UMB. Uh, the, the ongoing, and I want to emphasize this, the ongoing deliberations around how we approach 
the teaching in the classroom, uh, multilingual writers, uh, welcoming and understanding ourselves in, 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 in the act of making language and meaning in the sciences, in the social sciences, beyond that in our communities, and trying to understand exactly how all of these, these parts connect. Um, Isabel mentioned linguistic uh, dimension. She mentioned an advocacy dimension. She mentioned uh, a social justice dimension. So uh, these positions uh, that are now called multilingual writing specialists kind of evolved out of deliberations and challenges that are already occurring in English as a second language disciplinary circles. Uh, and so uh, it's moved much beyond some of the more structural ways of looking at language, for example, as if it's as if making good, clear language means just weaving together units and pieces of language out of context. But Isabel mentioned all these multiple contexts that are involved. Uh, that that's that's right up my alley. And that's what I've been interested in. That's the life I've lived in multiple uh, countries and cultures uh, and at home as well uh, with my family. And so it, it reaches me on multiple levels. Uh, and you can see, too, what's exciting about the position. And this, I think, is reflected in a lot of multilingual uh, writing specialist positions, not all, but many, um, is it's developed alongside writing centers as writing centers move kind of closer to the core of the curriculum. You heard Isabel talk a lot about how we're working with faculty. Uh, this has uh, evolved beyond kind of, and, and I do a lot of this work, too, the one-on-one with, uh, with language learners uh, in consultation over their writing. But it's evolved much beyond that to uh, extensive and rigorous training of the consultants that work with us and for us and with the writers, to faculty, to uh, faculty programs in terms of admissions, in terms of foundational writing experiences for their, for their first-year students across campus. For example, I've worked a lot with the Masters of Public Health program. Isabel and I have worked with uh, the nursing school and many other programs um, and we continue to develop and enrich those relationships. And when I when I interviewed and when I saw the post, I could tell from the way that it was worded, this was going to be that kind of position. And so I, I could not turn that down. Yeah, well, lucky for us that, that you didn't. <laughs> tell us a little bit about how your position, multilingual writing specialist, was received by faculty um, when you first started and how that's evolved over these last few years? Uh, that's a great question and a very important one. I, you know, First of all, I think uh, Isabel alluded to this. Uh, faculty are deeply committed to their students, I've noticed here on campus. They, they're, they're interested in uh, the teaching of writing. They're interested in mentorship of graduate students on multiple different levels and multiple different, con- different uh, contexts. For example, um, I know that we have programs that are beginning to shape take shape around uh, teaching assistantship or graduate assistantships to to bring students into the classroom to collaborate with faculty. Uh, that's been a recent development. Didn't have as much to do with my position, but I think it has to do with a, a greater understanding since graduate assistants work a lot with writers um, uh, of the importance of writing. Uh, nursing school, for example, has had writing help over in their academic center. The law school has its own writing center. We're all collaborating and communicating. Uh, in response to faculty concerns about how to shift pedagogy, uh, both conceptually, but also just in like everyday practice uh, toward more uh, more understanding of multiple different linguistic repertoires that are showing up in all of the diversity that UMB is experiencing at this time. So as more and more students come into the classroom and they present uh, multiple different kinds of English, multiple different strategies for combining multiple languages. Uh, how do we how do we honor those repertoires? How do we hold ourselves answerable as well to the fact that many of these students represent the global norm? Uh, 
Um, the 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 you can you can look this up. The statistics are clear that uh, most users of English are now using English as a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth language, <laughs> uh, and so minute, much of this diversity we see reflects that. Uh, the, the, the code meshing, the translanguaging, we call it a bunch of fancy words for the different ways that people take their linguistic repertoires, put them together and communicate uh, and do so beautifully and very clearly uh, and reflect the linguistic facts of life. I'm drawing on a scholar named Lippy Green who talks about the fact that languages are constantly changing. That language is, uh, that grammaticality uh, is not the same thing as clarity and communicativeness. So like, how do we, how do we respond to that in the classroom? Right. Um, and so that's how I've, I've kind of entered, entered into, into dialogue with faculty. And for example, in the public health program with, with, uh, Dr. St. George, uh, we have really developed a relationship over time. It, it, it is definitely a work in progress, and she'll tell you the same thing if you talk to her about this. It, it takes time to develop a kind of, um, to, to become in sync, because so many programs use specific genres. They're talking to specific audiences. They have to practice certain practices in order to communicate in terms not of just publishing, but of actually doing public health work out in the world. And so uh, we've really spent a lot of time kind of hashing out differences and coming to uh, collaborative um, compromises about what students need and want to learn. And it's been a, a, a beautiful experience. Well, let's talk a little bit about about the faculty response as they uh, notice over time this increasing linguistic diversity. What uh, what is some of your experience, both you and Isabel? You know, like with anything else in life, responses are very varied. Very, very, it sounds weird, but they're varied. And rightfully so, right? Everybody comes from a different place, you know, in terms of experience around language learning and so on. Um, I think the most common response and most, uh, I wouldn't say consistent response that we tend to get is some concern and worry about that if we focus on different types of Englishes that, you know, that we're not really teaching our students what some people, you know, have referred to me as sort of industry standards of, you know, of English or industry level standards of writing or, you know, I'm thinking of some of our doctoral students in our um, GPILS program and GPILS um, is our acronym for our graduate program in the life sciences. So folks who, you know, who are getting degrees in biochemistry and neuroscience and so on, that they are not, that we feel if we don't focus on the standards that they're expected to perform at in terms of publication, if we don't emphasize those, that we're not preparing our students well for their future careers. And there are a variety of responses to this, especially from our colleagues who have done a lot of work on anti-racist writing assessment and social justice-oriented teaching of writing, predominantly at the undergraduate level, right, but also more and more at the graduate level. And I think our response is often sort of like, well, let's unpack that. <laughs> let's unpack what we mean by standards. And I think what happens in those situations, Erin, is that we need to have some really uncomfortable, or we have to have situations that will make people, uh, conversations, we will we'll need to have conversations, Erin, with folks that will make people uncomfortable. And especially people like me, I identify as a white cisgendered woman. Um, so I think a lot of other white faculty might be uncomfortable with this because we do have to take about white supremacy as it shows up in standards of writing. There is no way around it. And scholars like Asao Inoue, um, 
uh, Baker Bell. I'm blanking on her first name, James. Yeah, April Baker. April, April Baker April Bell, Baker Bell. Um, and a variety of other, particularly Black, Indigenous, and people of color. The acronym we use often, what has been used lately, is BIPOC scholars. So Black, Indigenous, people of color, BIPOC scholars have pointed out for, gosh, you know, decades probably, if not longer, um, that you know, white supremacist practices show up in everything that we do in our culture. And so they show up in our rubrics. They show up in the way that we write introductions, discussion sections, reports, systematic reviews. I mean, whatever those genres are. So the goal is not to completely... To, and I think that's the fear I think that some faculty might have that we're going to stop teaching students how to produce these texts. But we do, I think we need to do a variety. And I think this approach of really looking at it from an anti-racist lens is to, we can, we can actually, we have an opportunity to actually really teach these things and also uh, look at and investigate what is the history behind those genres. Because let's face it, if you look at, especially in our context at UMB Medicine, right, let's just use an example. There have been a lot of very racist and exclusionary practices and discriminatory practices in medicine. And I think we're all unpacking those. Our institution is, un institution is unpacking them, which is fantastic. So let's unpack them in our writing classrooms or in our classrooms that use writing as well. And there are lots of great approaches and practices that we can do that by even, you know, including our students, because our students don't come to us as a tabula rasa, as you know, as like, we don't know anything, please, you know, fill me, I have, I have bring no prior knowledge. On the contrary, they bring a lot of knowledge, especially for students of diverse backgrounds or of, you know, who, who have had different, very varied experiences throughout their lives. Let's, let's listen to them and find out where they're coming from and then supporting them in getting to places where they can make conscious and well-informed decisions about the standards they want to continue using, or maybe why they at some point don't want to use them. Yeah. So I, there are two things that I, I really take away from your response, Isabel, and then I'd, I'd love to hear from James on this too. But the first is that the the intentions of so many faculty members that you work with are coming from a place of wanting to support their students and help them succeed, right? So this commitment to what we would call standard English or industry standards, those kinds of things are coming from um, wanting to make sure that their students advance in the field. And what I'm hearing you say is it's time to question where those standards come from uh, not to hold our students back or to put them at a disadvantage, um, but rather to help all of us uh, unpack where they came from in the first place and move the whole field forward, move the whole... Yes. Well put, Erin. And if I may add to that, I think at the same time, it's also an opportunity to actually really educate our students around the genres. Because I think what faculty who are content experts in their fields often don't realize or forget, and I'm the same, you know, I'm no, I'm, you know, I'm raising my hand right here, guilty as charged anytime. Well, we often forget some of the basics, like, well, don't students know what a good introduction should look like? What should go in a results section? They're reading them all the time. Yeah, they're reading them all the time. They're usually skimming them because they have a boatload of those to read. That's certainly what I did when I was in grad school. Right? And there's so much on these students' plates. So yes, they're absorbing them and they are exposed to them, but they're rarely taken through it systematically in a repeated way that they can really understand. So what are some of the genre conventions, like in an introduction section for a typical research manuscript? You have to, for example, I teach 
this in my course, look at the research gap. That's an important rhetorical move, we call it in our field, a common, you know, common way that authors, and many authors have internalized this, right? If they're successful published authors, they have totally internalized this. They probably couldn't even articulate it. They're like, oh yeah, don't you know how to do this? And so, so they're often not teaching it, not because they don't want the students to know, they don't realize what they know, but their students don't know. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. James, tell, tell us how you're responding to this and what you're thinking about. Absolutely. And I think uh, the notion of working with students through rhetorical analysis is such an important genre for teaching, um, uh, especially in that when we look at the history of the different kinds of writing uh, that we do in all the different disciplines, we rarely, as Isabel said, think about the histories behind it, how they've developed, what they developed for. They have meaning. They have purpose. Uh, and importantly, just like all languages, just like all of us who are working with many different linguistic repertoires across now social media channels and so forth, our daily lives that are so hybridizing, so uh, complex, genres change. And it makes room for us to recognize opportunities for innovation. Uh, when we talk about some of our um, efforts at, on campus around interprofessional education, for example, uh, interprofessional education at its heart is all about figuring out ways to improve the health of society around us by learning to communicate across genres, across disciplinary languages, across discourses, in order to meet the needs of very diverse patients and very complex um, pathological challenges and epidemiological challenges. I think the pandemic has really shown us a lot about that. Uh, And, you know, it's important too to remember that some of these changes and shifts, practically speaking, in a classroom, uh, you know, yes, they involve explicit discussions about the ways in which standard English has been taken up as a tool. Any language can be taken up as a tool for positioning certain groups of people in social, for social power and political power, which is what's happened with standardized English in terms of the history of the academy, in terms of the history of our country, and as we, as we wrestle with um, all kinds of reckonings at this point, but especially racial re- reckonings, um, it's important to recognize how you know, our insistence in the way that we perceive writers is tied up with colonialism and white supremacy culture. And, you know, doing that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, we, we have to have these all the time explicit conversations. They have to be in tandem with actual practical practices that Isabel was speaking of. I'll give you an example. Um, at one point, Isabel and I were working with a group of nursing faculty a few years ago, and um, a nursing faculty member said, you know, well, this is hard. I, I don't know how to do a lot of this stuff, James. I, I, I'm not a linguist. I'm not trained uh, uh, in education. I have a degree in my specific field. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to need some development on this and showed a lot of willingness to learn more about it. And in short, that's what we should do as faculty, right, is to have, you know, constant improvement through, through self-reflection and practice, uh, learning different practices from the research. But she said, and this is what clued me into it. She said, I, I asked, I said, well, what do you do when you look at student writing? And she said, well, I do what I think I know best. I look at grammar. And so she would she would go through and she felt like it was her obligation, as Isabel so so wonderfully explained earlier, her obligation to help students to move forward by pointing out every single what she perceived as grammatical mistake. Um, and uh, the research and I shared with her some of the research. Well, one of the issues with that is that uh, that can actually prevent or discourage students from engaging in learning more about the standardized language practices that may be expected in the classroom. 
uh, and in the discipline. Because where do you start when the page is just full of marks, right? And uh, some faculty were kind of like, well, that's what that's what the publishing uh, experience is like. And yes, sometimes it is. And what Isabel and I are talking about is also not just changing the classroom ecology, but changing the ecology of, cl- uh, of programs, curricula, and the publishing industry to come to more of an awareness of the labor that's involved in doing all of this. And we'll get to that in a second. But as I had this conversation with a faculty member, I said, well, Research seems to show us that if you if you look for patterns that you're concerned about that are unfamiliar to you and you ask questions about those, what's the story of those patterns? Just choose a few of them. It's our classroom, one classroom, my classroom is only one side among many, 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 many where this student's going to learn to do these things. Um, and where they're going to show us where, where their linguistic repertoires can be, can facilitate innovation. Um, so I, I asked her, I said, well, you know, so, so what would happen if you found out from the student you, you, that feedback became a dialogue with the student, right? Uh, to learn more about where this student came up with these different, you know, choices. Um, and the faculty member thought about it. And I said, if you choose a couple of patterns, research shows that it's much more manageable for students. They're more likely to take up that conversation with you. And that, to me, reflects more of the revision process that's involved in publishing. We do respond to uh, publishers and editors when they leave us comments. That is part of the disciplinary um, activity of our fields if we want to have careers in publishing. Uh, When we go into the public and we negotiate with patients or we negotiate with clients, we still have to listen to them. We still have to ask questions about, you know, what is meant when folks are saying certain things and how how can we adjust both our speech and our written language in order to, to, to reach the best possible conclusion. So it all kind of connects and it all is... um, revolving around just kind of opening opening our ears and eyes more to recognizing that students aren't just making errors as we perceive them, but they're human beings who are drawing on repertoires and, and long histories of education uh, from so many different backgrounds that once we hear those stories, once we acknowledge that labor, uh, students are much more likely to respond to our work with them and to develop further as writers in many different directions, not as just folks who are just going to repeat back st- what we think are standard uni- unitary uh, uh, patterns of standardized English, but are actually going to be those critical writers that Isabel was speaking about, critically reflective writers that, that Isabel was talking about. And we as faculty then to also learn about how these things come, to about, come about in, in multilingual folks' lives. Yeah. I'd like to dive in uh, and explore a little bit how how this looks from the student side. And you have a very unique perspective because, you know, students come to you um, in the writing center and maybe they're bringing a paper that has um, been evaluated by a professor using some of these, you know, standardized uh, rubrics, a standardized mindset um, and they come to you and they say, OK, I'm getting this feedback on my writing. And I, I just wonder if you could talk us through the process of how you how you would work with that student, what you would say to them, and what what you notice, uh, what's the impact that the student experiences when they when their linguistic diversity comes up against these standards. That's such a, a great question, and I think it's one that uh, a lot of folks, a lot of faculty uh, we work with, bring this question up as well because they're so concerned about their students. Uh, And it's something that goes on frequently in the discipline. We deliberate this all the time. In the writing center here and other writing centers where I've worked over the years, uh, students come uh, in feeling as though uh, they they are deficient. 
they're often sent to writing centers. They don't voluntarily come. Uh, by sent, I mean they're either explicitly or implicitly challenged to come to the writing center in, out of fear, um, out of possible failure, um, and failure for many students, especially students uh, who are racialized and minoritized and marginalized, are are worried about failing not just in the eyes of the academy, but in the eyes of their community, the eyes of, of society, especially in a society that consistently racializes them and casts their particular linguistic practices and cultural practices as deficient or inappropriate for academic knowledge production. So they come in with this, and my job is to find out the story. And I'll ask them, so tell me more about the feedback. They'll say to me, well, I'm a terrible writer. Uh, my teacher said I need to come work with you. Um, or it's or it was implied through the syllabus, I need to come work with you. Or I got a certain uh, grade on a paper that, you know, you know, which uh, was suggested, the, the feedback suggested I come talk to you. And so we'll sit down and we'll talk about that and come to find out they've had, you know, this long history of, of feedback that can be kind of uh, uneven, inconsistent. Uh, often one classroom and faculty will use particular language around feedback. Another classroom is a very different one. Everybody seems to use flow and grammar, and they we think we know what we mean when we're talking about those things, but they can mean very different things depending on the discipline, the class, the content, um, and the audiences, and the purposes for the writing. So we unpack all of this. Um, and what I point out very clearly as we do that is that uh, even though the student may feel like they're not meeting the standard, and they've had that communicated to them in multiple ways across the academy, across the institutions, and across society in many ways. Um, they belong here. They were admitted to the school. They took the tests. They were admitted by admissions committees. They were vetted and admitted, and they belong here. Um, it's also when they come up against these standards uh, and feel like it's they've lost a lot of hope, um, I'm, I very clearly communicate to them that these things can be learned. Writing can be learned, uh, but it cannot be learned in, an, in, a, in a situation where we assume that the learning is politically neutral. Their labor, their labor and what they have come up against in order to be in this academy needs to be acknowledged, and it needs to be acknowledged in writing uh, assessment. It needs to be acknowledged in the teaching of writing. So, Because at the very foundation of their survivance has been the languages that they use. Um, it's not just that their identities are wrapped up and connected to all of this. It's also that they have done work and they have arrived and they deserve to arrive fully. And so we unpack these kinds of things. And, you know, I, I work with students, for example, like, uh, and these are composite, uh, uh, drawn from many, many different moments with students, but um, students who get a lot of grammar supposed errors marked on their papers. But then we look at the rubric together, and the rubric only designates maybe three points out of all the points available for grammar, for standard grammar that matches, say, the APA guidelines. And so the student becomes confused since there's an outsized marking of grammar on the draft, and the feedback seems to spend so much time on, for example, how well the student uses articles or not, but the rubric only grants a certain number of points to that. The student is confused. Well, it looks like I did everything else really well right? Or, or up to par at least. But then there's this problem with grammar. Why are there so many comments about that? So the students can get really confused. And so I think it's really important from the student's perspective um, to, for us, for us faculty members and, 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 and educators to, to pay attention to that and to come up with strategies that um, mitigate that confusion to kind of get on the same page about some strategies and tricks and practices that we can use 
to, to, to more justly approach uh, providing feedback to students that doesn't discourage, but that does what we want it to do, right? Look, we're not reviewer number two. Okay, we're not, we're not, the, we're not, we're not here to necessarily scrutinize everything in every situation a student does in every classroom. Our job is to collaborate among classes, among faculty, to make each site a moment where we can move the needle. Ha, I was going to do it a little bit so that the students can gradually learn over time. But the root of it is they are not deficient. Uh, as human beings, their language practices are not deficient, right? Uh, they will take up standardized Englishes, plural, nursing Englishes, social work writing Englishes, legal writing Englishes, and they will learn to use those. Um, and the difficult and most challenging thing for us to recognize too, and I do this with students and I have open conversations, and these are not with just students, but postdocs, colleagues, that even though students who are racialized and marginalized pick up and use these different Englishes to position themselves as writers in a discourse. It doesn't get rid of racism. White supremacy culture doesn't disappear. And this is the entanglement of the political realities and the racialized uh, process of racialization in our country. They're the realities of these contexts. They still go out into the world and because of their, and, and, you know, because of the ways that white listening subjects or audiences view their names, their phenotypes, whatever it may be, uh, still perceive their reading or their, their, their writing or their speaking as, as um, deficient or inappropriate or informal. Scholars who are writing this research actually talk about this happening to them as they've developed as students as well and researchers. Yeah, it's quite a, a quite a lot of stories about it. If I may add to this, because I wanted James mentioned reviewer too, um, and some listeners might not be familiar with this 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 uh, this trope or this <laughs> reviewer too tends to be there. So tech, you know, most uh, and most folks might be familiar with just in case they aren't that uh, most academic manuscripts are reviewed by two reviewers, and somehow reviewer two has gotten the reputation as being the tougher one and the meaner one. And it's I think there's been a statistical analyses of like how often reviewer two becomes the you know the mean reviewer, and that have shown that reviewer two tends to be more frequently the mean reviewer. So just FY, just adding to that, and I I wanted to add to what James was saying as well. Um, well put. I I, I you know I. I've had these these situations happening to me and I've also and more frequently I've had I've worked with students who've who've been in these situations it's demoralizing and I can speak from my own personal experience and I don't think that the faculty who put me in this position when I was a student meant to be harmful actually I, th I think they actually meant to be helpful right they really wanted to support me and help me become a a better writer or more effective writer and um, so we often you know unknowingly do harm to each other and to our students or you know and, and harm is done to us as well unknowingly by the perpetrator in these situations so I think we need to really you know move the needle on that for sure that we're we're becoming more aware of how some of these practices that for so long in the acad in academic uh, communities and academia have become standard and normal are really harmful and have been harmful to a lot of people for a long time. But certainly now it's, you know, the these reckonings that James mentioned have brought them to the surface. And, you know, and I, in my courses that I teach in a science communication program, I talk a lot about sort of quote unquote standards or conventions. I like to call them conventions because it implies a little bit more flexibility than a standard. 
Um, even though sometimes the word standard even comes into my language. What can I say? We're not perfect, right? But these, I talk about these conventions in research writing. Um, and I'm, I try to be very transparent in both my written communication and my video communication. The class I teach are mostly asynchronous. So I don't interact with my students via Zoom um, or in the classroom. Um, so I try to be very clear about some, like my own biases. Like, for example, I don't like when people start a sentence with though, because I think although is the better term. It's more formal. However, I've seen plenty of published articles where though is used instead of although. So I, and I say like, listen, in, in my experience to my ear or my eyes, this looks or sounds better. Um, but that's just, you know, be keep in mind, that's my own bias. And I think that developing that sensitivity is really important because I've, I've seen a lot of my colleagues and I've worked with faculty, not here at other institutions who would use, and I use the phrase myself when I started grading papers um, of students back when I was a grad student, I used the phrase awkward a lot. I would write awkward in the, and this was still when I got paper submissions. And what the heck does that mean? You know, awkward, like gee, a lot of things are awkward. And I've learned over time that, you know, then usually my instinct is a good one. Something isn't, I'm not getting something here as the reader. So, and as I, as I just phrase that, I have to pull back and be like, okay, as a reader right now, what am I not getting from the text, what the writer is presenting to me? And then I can engage with the writer in a conversation. I can ask questions like, I'm thinking you mean this, or do you mean this? I'm not quite getting the connection between this or that. It sounds like it's more laborious, so I really pick my battles when I go through it, when I work with student papers. But I think that those moments from the student's perspective, because I've been on the receiving end of comments like this as well, are so much more useful for, you know, for, for growth and for learning than just, you know, marking everything as much as possible, but just with short little pithy remarks like awkward flow. And, you know, I explain what I mean by flow very clearly to my students. We talk about paragraph structure and it takes me a long time to explain it. So just adding those marginal comments on the side Students and writers need more context than that from us as as evaluators. That's so important. And it's so what I love about this is because I feel like we're transitioning transitioning now into some concrete strategies that faculty members who might be listening who are saying, OK, I, I, I appreciate this. I, I understand this mindset. I understand the the slippery slope when we start talking about standards and and, and standardized writing. But I have been brought up in this system. I have been trained in these ways myself. And so it is very hard to separate yourself in the act of teaching, of evaluating, of, of providing comments on written work. And so this idea of, of changing, you know, kind of this, I almost saw when you were describing the awkward, Isabel, just like a stamp that just gets stamped right <laughs> on there yep. with, and, and it's such a judgment, right? Like it's, yes. there, there's nothing there. But what I, what I heard in your approach is really changing that to more of a conversation, even though it's an asynchronous, distant conversation, you know, but it's you when you're reading, writing to the writer, and then the writer receiving that after you've read, you know, it's, it's not a real time conversation, but it, it invites just a thoughtfulness to, oh, what am I trying to say here? Or why didn't this land with this particular reader? And it individualizes it, you know, rather than making some grand proclamation that the academy sees this as awkward. It's I, Isabel, as your instructor, I'm trying to figure out what you mean here. Can you can you help me out a little bit? Does that 
is is that the feeling that you're going for? Is that absolutely? I think yes. that's a, that's really well put, Erin, and it has. It has a lot to do. And, and, you know, the irony I always find is when I talk with faculty like, oh, I don't know how to approach, you know, and, and struggling rightfully because they have been brought up. We've all been up in a system, brought up in a system that has these pithy remarks, right? That's been a standard for a long time. And so I, I get that people use that as their toolbox. They have nothing else in there. So we really are proposing that there is a there's a plethora of tools out there. There's a there's a big toolbox out there, and it's it's been out there and it's been used and it's it works really well. So let's take a look at it, you know. And one of them is the sort of from the reader's perspective, which is you know how James trains our consultants. That is what our consultants. I mean, that is their second nature. Is you know the reader's hat, and uh, and that's how when I do peer review in my courses, I tell students when they review their peers' writing, I said come from a perspective as a reader, and it's amazing. I just reviewed a. Few months, a few weeks ago, some assignments for my students, and I think everybody at some point in the side comment said, "You know, as a reader, I'm struggling with what you're saying here." And I thought <laughs> that's exactly what I tell them. They just copied me, and they copied me. Like, yay, excellent, right? That's what they should do. And so, and so, and I think it it, it leads to you know a conversation around. Uh, James mentioned earlier, um, really foregrounding the labor, because I think when we're engaging with um, with our students or with our student writers around, you know, what are they meaning here? We're recognizing the labor that goes into what they put in there. And I think sometimes as faculty, we have the tendency because we're stressed out. We have a lot on our plate, just like, you know, everybody in the world. I mean, I get it. Right? Fa- you know, it's, it's not an easy life at times. And so we get in this place where we feel like, oh, I don't think my student put a lot of work into this. And they might or they might not. I don't know. I wasn't there. But in most cases, I have found students have put work into their writing, even though it might not look to me like it's it's a first draft. And the first draft, my first draft are not, you know, something to write home to anybody about because they're my first and even my second drafts at time because I'm still experimenting and I'm allowing myself to mess up. So I wish we would give, I think giving our students their grace is important. And so the other suggestion I have for a lot of faculty is, you know, to really take a look at the syllabus and look at the writing assignments. And it might seem like it's a lot of work to do, you know, first to do drafts or allow students to revise something more frequently throughout the semester because you're like, oh my God, I got to add another writing assignment to my grading repertoire. But what I can say in my own experience and the experience of lots of faculty I work with over the years is that when we do that and we just try it with one or two assignments and give students the opportunity to revise again, and we focus our feedback on the, the, the we call them higher level, con- higher order concerns. It's a kind of a weird language to put around it. But basically, we don't focus on the grammar and the like, where's the article and awkward or whatever. But we engage with the text and the writer. And we do that for just not for everything that the writer is writing, but for a few select moments. It actually reduces our time in grading and ultimately or in re- giving feedback. And it really gives it's a better experience um, overall, both and for faculty and I think for students as well. So that's another strategy that I suggest to really kind of be like, hey, where could I where could I think of a writing assignment as something not just towards the end, the one of time, but and, and not just an outline, but really having students write, you know, a page or two of a larger paper early on. And for students to know it's okay, that's not perfect, but then give feedback, just like a reviewer would. You know, we we all know as faculty when we publish, 
um, as researchers ourselves, the review of feedback can be brutal and it's a lot. And working, you know, walking through that can be tough. And so, but it is usually feedback that is focused on the content. I mean, there are always comments about language, whatever. It's another conversation we can have another time. But in most cases, feedback we get from our reviewers is very much focused on you know, what we would call flow, but they're asking very specific questions. So let's do that for our students as well. Uh, another area that I'd love to talk about in terms of the toolbox, and I see this a lot in my work um, supporting faculty with their online courses, um, it comes in the rubrics for writing assignments. And typically what I see is a, a rubric that's been designed with three or four criteria that are specific to the the learning outcomes of a particular assignment, a writing assignment. And then there's always, you know, that last 10 or 15% section of the rubric that has to do with mechanics, grammar, style, APA, all of those things. So James, can you tell us a little bit about how, how you see the inclusion or exclusion of that component of a rubric fitting into this approach. Sure, sure. I think I think it's important, and I think you alluded to this, Aaron, and I think Isabel did earlier too. That rubrics, um, as well as writing assignments and their connection to to uh, objectives and so forth, are part of the entire ecology of a course. They're connected to the entire ecology of a program, which is connected in turn to an ecology, a much broader ecology for an entire discipline uh, or profession. And so I think we have to look at all of those different structures across different scales to figure out exactly what we're asking students to do. That's the first thing I recommend. So being aware of how a rubric may align or misalign with some of the goals and commitments of particular professions. Right now, there's a lot of discussion around diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of cultural competency and so forth. I know that our uh, Diversity Action Council has a cultural competency statement on their webpage. Um, how does that rubric, particularly that section you were discussing, uh, Aaron, um, how does that connect to uh, our commitments to greater equity and justice in the academy and beyond the academy into the professions we're training folks to enter? Um, and so if we take a very standard structural approach, a very prescriptive approach to that uh, particular aspect of the work that students are doing, often we're asking them to meet a standard or a convention right? Without unpacking the labor they've, they've gone through to get there. So this overt focus on uh, qu quality in writing in terms of rubric grading and assessment can often, while we think it's doing a lot to help students unpack exactly what they need to do, often what it does is obscure what they're doing and erase sometimes what they're doing and just kind of stamp it with that convention and say, you have to meet that particular, you have to check that box which is, I think, something we're really trying to avoid in terms of equity, inclusion, diversity, justice, and so forth. So uh, what I've often, it, it depends on the kind of writing, it depends on what the students, and this is an important part, uh, Asao Inoue, Maya Poe, Baker, April Baker Bell, many, many, many other scholars, uh, Flor uh, Jonathan Flores and, um, uh, sorry, Jonathan Rosa and, and Nelson Flores, others who do this work, talk about taking a look at ourselves first, understanding ourselves as we're dramatizing the reader when we look at these things. And when we set up a rubric, we're also dramatizing ourselves as readers. Uh, as a reader, what do I want to see in the language for this particular kind of writing? Um, there may be particular kinds of moves, rhetorical moves, structures, organization, the where, where and how a paragraph is set up that are expected. But then there also may be moments where things can be innovated. 
And I think leaving that space open in the rubric in every section for innovation is very important. So what I work with faculty to talk about is like where in this particular kind of writing can innovation be part of uh, what we're looking at as we dramatize ourselves as readers who ostensibly are folks in the discipline who are looking at the students' practice writing, because let's face it, to assay means to give an attempt or to make an attempt, right? So as a student's making an attempt, we recognize this as an attempt and not a polished product. And we look at these particular sections about where does where does linguistic innovation happen? Where 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 does the student actually uh, pay attention carefully to the particular uh, particulars of the American Psychological Association's uh, section on gender inclusive language? And they use the singular they instead of the old standard he or she. And why? Does the student know why? And I think we're getting to that point too. Is like part of part of developing the rubric is trying to picture ways to get students to talking about those choices. If they're going to make particular innovative choices where they see them as innovative, what's the story behind it? Can they talk about it? And that's when we get to the point where critically minded writers are coming out of our classrooms and it forms a tapestry across programs. And each class becomes a site where students are learning to deepen that kind of critical thinking. So that when they get to reviewer number two, they can explain if they need to why they made certain choices. Aaron, can I add something? Can I add something on rubrics? Because I've, uh, <laughs> I've actually. So you're asking about rubrics. I actually stopped using rubrics, and it's a personal decision. So I've I've adopted a labor-based grading approach in my courses, and I've started using guideline or a check a checklists for my papers. Actually, it was a suggestion that you made, Aaron. If I you know if I remember correctly, so my students have a checklist of things that should be in the assignment. That's kind of a short version of the longer assignment description. And I've started using those this past summer and it's been amazing. And it actually, it frees me to really focus on the text and each each text rather than trying to figure out the rubric. And again, I've seen rubrics work really well and I've used rubrics my entire grading life. And I think they have a great, there's great rubrics that one can use. I just decided to do away with them and see where that takes me. And I've been really liking it. And I've also noticed that, you know, talking about another tool and faculty tool and faculty toolbox is when, when, when we assign a certain paper, a certain genre, let's say we assign a genre of a literature review, then let's give students a sample paper. And I like using when I when I teach my courses several times and I do teach them every year, I have started using students' papers from the previous year as an example. And I've asked a student, of course, of permission and uh, I either anonymize it or not, whatever their preference is. And on top of that, I started doing this this semester, actually, on top of providing this paper, I also recorded a short video explaining why I chose this paper as an example for this genre and what is done really well. So the students get not just the description, the checklist, uh, they get the, the sample paper. They also get me talking about, you know, so here in this paragraph, there's a really great transition in this paragraph. Here, the author is really doing a great job in including other sources and, you know, juxtaposing different arguments. This is a great example for a conclusion. Here's a great thesis statement. Whatever, those are the components that I might use in a, in a, in, in a particular genre that I ask my students to write. And I found that extremely useful, especially for those of us who teach online, where we can't always have these in-class 
podcast discussions that just erupt where we can go over these things in greater detail. But to really to think that stud students need multiple exposures to the content and sample papers are the number, I think, the best thing. And I speak from my own perspective as a student at some point. When I know what something needs to look like, then I can be like, okay, how can I emulate that? And then I can start also varying it. And I, you know, like I'm learning the scale, like you're doing, you know, on the piano, and then when I want to become a jazz pianist, I start experimenting with the scales. But I gotta look at a scale first and know why it's there, what, how to use it, and then I can start also, you know, developing a bigger repertoire and and also drawing on repertoires that I bring to the table myself. I think that's a really good point, too. And the you know, by aligning those different samples, students can see where there's so much flexibility within genres. There's so much flexibility in different kinds of purposes for writing. And point those out as faculty members. We can see that because we've been reading this stuff for a long time. Point out those differences. Look, this person organized it differently, or this person used language and conventions differently than the person who wrote the other paper. It sounds like really what you're advocating for is intentionality on both sides, that there's intentionality in the design of the assignment and some deep thinking about what's what the, the faculty as reader is hoping to experience. And then also equipping student writers with the tools to know that they're they're not just doing this as default, that this that if they are activating their their linguistic superpowers right. uh, that they're they're doing it with knowledge that I'm doing this and I'm doing it for a particular purpose um, or if I'm choosing to play the standard standardized language game I'm recognizing that I'm doing that and I'm doing it for a particular purpose. Yes, correct. Absolutely. I, li I like the linguistic superpowers. I need to. I need to think on that a little bit and play with that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you, you guys will get the first capes, uh, <laughs> and then we'll we'll, uh, we'll get a little a little cape going. This has been such a fantastic discussion. I just I'm so excited uh, to to know you personally and to be able to extend this conversation and and to offer it to our listeners. So I cannot thank you enough for for taking the time. This is a whole field. Uh, we could have probably done this episode for six days and still not tapped into everything that needs to be discussed. But um, but I really do. I appreciate how you both balance this uh, philosophy in this mindset with concrete practical tools that faculty in, in our specific context of, of graduate health and human services, professional education, uh, can really run with. Um, so thank you both. Thanks, Aaron. It was a pleasure being here. Bye everyone. You're welcome, Aaron. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you for joining us today on moving the needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.